team, if you will. We'll be in multiple places in the book of, of Genesis. Uh, and I want for you just for a moment to picture yourself in the shoes of a person who has advanced knowledge about a coming judgment, that God has personally revealed something to you, that something or some place is in danger. Now, I don't make a habit of, of recommending Hollywood movies, and this is not particularly a recommendation. But a movie that was released in the year 2009 called Knowing revolved around the discovery of a list of numbers that when decoded properly and when grouped properly revealed the date, time, location, coordinates, and death tolls of major catastrophic events around the world. Of course, they went back into history and put a series of numbers together for different things that took place. And a college professor found the key that linked these things together. And from that was even able to determine that, that certain natural disasters were going to happen in the future. And so on that knowledge, he went about to try to either prevent them from happening uh, or else to keep those that he cared about from being in those places to be involved in those situations. Toward the end of the movie, and this is the part that registers with me, there's a very vivid display of an end of the world situation that they were trying to somehow avoid. To watch the planet and to watch individual cities be swept over with a solar flare watching the earth being destroyed by it is not very different from what the Bible says will happen in Second Peter. We're told that the world will one day perish by fire. By the way, if you're worried about global warming, that's the global warming that's going to destroy the earth. All right? It's not going to happen because uh, cows emitted too much methane or, or because uh, you drove your SUV. It'll be okay. I assure you that this planet will last at least 1,007 more years because we have a millennium, we have a tribulation, and we have until Christ returns. So it's going to be all right. It's going to. But I do know for a fact that the Bible tells us that with fervent heat, the elements will melt. This earth will one day be destroyed by fire. We're not only told that in Revelation and in Second Peter, but we're told that in the first book of the Bible in Genesis that the world will not be destroyed by water again. We know that next time it will be by fire. Now, it would be quite a stretch to say that this movie is about Bible prophecy or that you should you know, maybe cancel your normal Sunday school uh, and, and show this video in portions. I wouldn't recommend that at all. But it did have some very interesting moments. And a big reason that I think the professional critics disliked it is because, number one, uh, largely Hollywood rejects the idea that one day the world will perish by fire, as Second Peter 3 tells us. No, no, they think that man is in control and this planet will exist until man wrecks it. Uh, secondly, 
uh, those who deny God, reject the idea of a God who knows the end from the beginning, who would be able to put it all in a book for us to be able to read to see what the future holds. And then thirdly, they reject the notion that God has revealed this coming judgment to man and that we have a duty to act upon it. I challenge you again to put yourself in the shoes of a person who has advanced revelation about coming judgment. In Scripture, we have several men like this. Uh, the first man that we think of is Noah, who has knowledge of a coming judgment. Uh, we know of others, uh, very popular ones. Of course, some of the major prophets is predicting that unless Israel turns back to God, they're going to fall into captivity. Uh, we know a man named Jonah was able to warn the Assyrian nation and the capital of Nineveh of a coming judgment. Again, I ask, what would you do if you knew that God's judgment was coming on a city or on a country? Would God be fair if He did not send them warning? And would you warn them? Or would you come up with a reason not to? In Genesis 18, I want to preach on the place that never got a missionary. Genesis 18. I want you to begin reading with me in verse 16. Genesis 18:16 And the men rose up from thence and looked toward Sodom. We know from chapter 19 that these two men uh, were indeed angels sent by God. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Skip down to verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done according, uh, altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. If you're familiar with this passage, you know the rest of the chapter involves bargaining between Abraham and God in an effort to try to save the city of Sodom. The beginning of chapter 19 gives the account of the two angels arriving in Sodom, and you can see a very vivid picture of the perversion and the degradation of the men of the city of Sodom. We're going to move right ahead to verse 23 in chapter 19. Where we find this. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar. Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and upon Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And He overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. His wife looked back from behind Him and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Now, if you haven't spent years in church or in Sunday school, you don't have a Bible background, you may not know the characters that we're mentioning here. Abraham, Lot. But to give you a quick synopsis, we can turn back to Genesis 13. And in Genesis 13, we see an introduction to these men. Of course, God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham. Anywhere the sole of his foot touched the ground, it would belong to 
his eventual grandson, a man known as Israel, and his descendants. In chapter 13, uh, verse 1, we find this, Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the south. This man, Abram, will later be known as Abraham. The man named Lot here is the son of Abram's brother, Haran. Uh, thus, this is Abraham's, this is Abram's or Abraham's nephew. At this time, Abram has no son. Lot is like a son to him. You may also note that it mentions Abram as having a wife. It mentions Lot as not having a wife at this point, and I'll deal with that in just a minute. In verses two and three, we read that Abram is camped. In verse three, we see that he he went to where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel. And hey, I, I'm attempting to do this. I'm not going to try to deal with the compass points of where you are, but just if you're imagining me as a compass, you've got north, south, and east this way. Am I the way you're looking at me? No, I'd be west this way from mine. Okay, so east. My point toward the east. Maybe not where we are geographically here, but to the east and to the west. From your perspective. All right. We'll do it this way. So if you're looking at me and you're, this is a compass faced, this would be west for you, right? That's what we're going to call it anyway, okay? It says here that they're between Bethel and Hai. We will find here that Bethel is located to the west of where Abram is currently. And Hai is located to the east. I like to see what the names of Bible places mean. Bethel means the house of God. Hai is mentioned also in the book of Joshua as Ai, and it is called a heap of ruin, a place of destruction. Can I just make a little application here for a moment? If Bethel is here and Hai is here, and you turn your back on Bethel, you turn your back on the house of God, you turn your back on God and the people here in this church that care about you. You turn your back on the things of God. You know where you're heading? You're heading toward destruction. You're heading toward ruin. And you best turn back around and get yourself back to the house of God before things are too late for you. We're going to see how this will play out again in a minute. That Bethel is to the west and Hai is to the east. In verses 5-13 through we learn more about Lot. We learn more about the situation between Abram's herdmen and Lot's herdmen. There was a conflict between them. Basically, they had too much cattle, they had too much possessions to be able to dwell together. Uh, verse 7, there was a strife. Abram, in verse 8, says, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me, if thou wilt take the left hand. I will go to the right. If thou depart to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go east, I'll go west. If you go west, I'll go east, north, south. We will split up. We will cover this ground. Uh, there's plenty of land for us to conquer. Verse 10, we find the beginning of Lot's downfall. Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld all the plain of Jordan. There was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Even as the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as thou comest unto Zoar. Uh, the beautiful uh, watered plains of Egypt, there in the Nile Delta. Man, it's so beautiful. Uh, the Bible even says that this place was like the garden of God. We understand that means the garden of Eden. 
The paradise that God originally put Adam and Eve in. This was a place that was well to be desired. It would appeal to the eyes. It would appeal to many fleshly lusts, we find later. And Lot was drawn to that. And in verse 11, remember that we've said that Bethel is to the west and Hai is to the east. That this direction we have the house of God and this direction we have a heap of ruin. And now we read verse 11. Then Lot chose him all the plain of Jordan. And Lot journeyed east. And they separated themselves the one from the other. Abraham, Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. If you've ever been to a Christian camp or you've had an evangelist come through and preach from this passage, you've probably all heard a message on Lot somewhere. And we have the classic outline. And this is uh, one that, that I have, a message within a message. Here's a quick outline of, of Lot's life. Uh, number one, Lot was wooed to Sodom. He, he saw it, he was attracted to it, and he went after it. Lot was wooed to Sodom, and then Lot went toward Sodom. He first of all dwelt in the city of the plain, which meant he was making his way down to that shining city there, the place where he wanted to be. Lot wished for Sodom. Of course, it said that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. When he would wake in the morning, he would get up, and as he walked out of his tent, there's Sodom in front of him. He built it with a, with a beautiful view right there in front. He said, man, one day, one day, honey, when we make it, we're going down there, we're going to live right there in Sodom. He wished for it. And by the time we get to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, we not only find that Lot fancied Sodom, he has done more than face his tent there, he is a fixture in the city. It says that he was in the gate. That is the place where business was done, where government was conducted. At this point, Lot was a respected community figure. Lot was wooed to Sodom, went toward Sodom, wished for Sodom, and then he worked in Sodom, possibly even worked for the city of Sodom as some type of government leader. We also find by Genesis 19 that Lot now has a wife, children, sons-in-law. And I believe that we can determine from what we read in Genesis 13 that Lot wed in Sodom as well. That he found his wife there. He found him a woman in a Sodom who really loved Sodom. As we read there, when it was time to go, she wasn't willing to leave. She looked back and became a pillar of salt. Now that's your classic outline on, on Lot, but now I want to take a different direction in this message. And I want you to think about this question. I'm asking this as a hypothetical question. Why didn't God send Sodom a missionary? Now I present that as a hypothetical because I say this to you. Don't make it a habit of going around and asking, how come God did this? How come God didn't do that? Uh, that doesn't work out very well for anyone who has ever tried it. Job tried it and was put to shame, was humbled in the process. Jeremiah learned that it is not the place of the clay to ask the potter what he's doing. Uh, Isaiah was told that God's ways were higher than our ways. His thoughts and ways are superior, far superior to ours. So just for a minute, I want to look into some reasons that we might say why God didn't send a missionary to a place like Sodom. Somebody might say they didn't deserve a missionary. They deserved judgment. And I would have to say that 
based on what is deserved, Sodom certainly didn't deserve judgment. Wouldn't you say? Of course they did. Uh, There's another city in the Bible that deserved judgment too. It's called Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And talking about wicked, they were fierce warriors that would come in. They would conduct raids every spring. They decided, okay, here's a city-state over here. We want what they have. We'll knock on the gate. Hey, we're from Assyria. Here's the deal. Give us everything that you have, everything that we want, and we won't kill you. But if you say no, then we'll kill you and take what you, what you have anyway. Which way do you want to do this? They had superior weapons. They had chariots. and They had the ability, the military might, to do that to every nation that came about. Very fierce warriors. No doubt this is part of the reason that Jonah decided, I don't want to go there when God called him. Not to mention that the city of Nineveh was about 750 miles away from his hometown of Gath-Hefer. Now, 750 miles. Hey, sorry guys, your vehicle's been a lot more than 750 miles in the last two and a half weeks. We've had quite a bit of miles on it. You say, so what's the big deal about traveling 750 miles? They didn't have a Cherokee to go in, okay? You know, they had a, it was on foot, it was on camel, and a trip of 750 miles would take roughly a month in those days with considerable danger and considerable cost. And there probably wasn't a place on earth that deserved a missionary less than the city of Nineveh, but God sent them one. Why? Because there were people there who would repent. And, and, there, and that missionary that God sent was a reluctant missionary who was not fully committed to it, but eventually God coerced him to go, and he went, and the city was not destroyed. Because the preaching was effective and the people repented in sackcloth and ashes. So we can't say that God didn't send Sodom a missionary because they didn't deserve it, because He sent places, He sent missionaries to other places that didn't deserve it. And understand this the very nature of mercy is that it is undeserved. So that can't be the reason. I stopped in Genesis 13 at verse 12, but Genesis 13, 13 reveals something else. And you might use this as the reason that maybe God didn't send Sodom a missionary. Verse 13 says, But the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. You might say they were too far gone. The Bible calls them wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. They were the worst. You read Genesis 19, the first half of the chapter, and I can't imagine anything more perverse than that. And that's typically what we think of when our mind goes to the city of Sodom. I mean, there's a dictionary entry for sodomy. What's involved there? What was going on in the city of Sodom? But, While that may be what we think of as the primary sin of the city of Sodom, I would invite you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 16 to look at two verses there. In Ezekiel 16, Sodom is mentioned there. An unlikely place for Sodom to be mentioned in that Sodom was destroyed here in Genesis uh, Genesis 19. But God mentions the name Sodom there. 
What he's doing through the prophet Ezekiel is he is making a comparison between the nation of Israel. Of course, Israel and Judah are split at this time. He's making a comparison between Israel and Sodom. So what he's saying is, hey, nation of Israel, in this way, you are like the city of Sodom. I'll give you another example in the New Testament where this takes place. Do you remember when Jesus told the disciples, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to take me. They're going to bind me. They're going to put me on the cross. I'm going to die. And three days later, I'm going to raise again. And one of his disciples piped up and says, Not so, Lord. Who was that? You know who it is. Peter said, Not so, Lord. His name is what? His name is Peter, right? But then Jesus said to him, Get thee behind me, Satan. Now, was that indeed Satan there? Now, some have hypothesized that, that Satan entered into Peter at that point and, and that Jesus is rebuking Satan. But what is happening there is that Peter is making the kind of statement that Satan would make. I preached this morning on a different text. And Satan ultimately had the same thing in mind. He wanted to prevent Christ from going to the cross. That's the reasons for the temptations of the wilderness, the reasons that he stirred up the Sanhedrin to pick up stones to stone him, the reason that he enticed the Sanhedrin to push Jesus off a cliff, and Jesus, of course, passed through their midst undetected. So when he says, get thee behind me, Satan, but he's speaking to Peter, what he's saying is, hey, buddy, that's a statement that Satan would make. In, in light of what we see here, he's making the comparison. He's not saying that Peter is evil incarnate, but what he's saying is, in this area, Peter was behaving like Satan. You understand what I'm saying when I say that? Okay, so in this context, what Israel was guilty of was the same thing that Sodom was guilty of, and this is where he's making the comparison. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. This is being spoken to Judah. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. The sister of Judah was Israel, but here he's calling them Sodom because in this way they were like the city of Sodom. This was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom, which is Israel, but in comparison they're like Sodom in this way. The iniquity of Sodom, you say, I know what the iniquity of Sodom is, but read what the Bible says here. It says the iniquity of Sodom, the very first thing it lists is, Pride. Huh, sounds like Proverbs 6, 16. These six things doth the Lord hate. Yea, seven are abomination unto him. The very first one is a proud look. Pride, fullness of bread, abundance of idleness in her, her and her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty and committed abomination before me. It finally got down to the thing that we think of when we think of the city of Sodom. Therefore I took them away as I saw good. You might say the city of Sodom was too far gone. They were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. But what we find here, when we look at what Sodom's sin was, we find a list of multiple things, and at the top of that list was pride. And I must say this, and I say this with a great love for my country. I love America. One of the hardest things about going to England is the fact that I love America a great deal. I really do. Uh, I don't, despite its flaws and its faults, I'm not looking to run away from the United States. I'm going only because God has called me to go. I'm not going for an extended vacation or because I don't want to see what Europe is like. I'm going only because God's called me because I love, I love this country. I love America. 
But I say this, in reading that passage, everything I read there sounds just like the United States of America. Run down of their sin. We could plug America right in there. America is, the first sin there was pride. America is proud of its independence. It's proud of its military, and, and rightfully so. It's proud of its economic superiority. And America is even proud of its sin. We have a month dedicated to it. In fact, it's the sin of sodomy. Uh, fullness of bread was mentioned there. Guys, America has been blessed by God. We're the breadbasket of the world in many cases. We produce so much. We produce more than our people can eat. There are two different standards for world hunger. One for the rest of the world and one for the United States. The rest of the world views hunger this way. Roughly 11% worldwide do not get enough to eat and they experience hunger daily. Which means that around the world, hunger is defined as you went a day without eating. Now, aside from aside from if you've had a medical procedure, or unless you've just re- been really sick and didn't want anything, have any of you recently gone a full day without having a meal? Maybe you chose not to, but because you couldn't afford it or because you didn't have the resources. No. In America, the standard is what they call food security. And only around 4% of Americans suffer from this. And that is defined as occasionally missing a meal. So maybe you missed one meal because you didn't have enough and then you qualify as part of that 4%. Guys, we have fullness of bread here that is unknown in the rest of the world. Uh, Abundance of idleness. Oh boy. Um, (laughs) I was developing this message uh, while COVID was not even was not even a big thing yet. I mean, maybe it was in Wuhan, but not over here. I don't want to get political, okay. So let's just stick to it. Abundance of idleness. I'm just going to say this, and I'm going to move on. If you made the decision that, hey, it makes more sense for me not to work, and I'm going to draw a check because I make more by not working than by working, you might think I'm pretty smart, you might think, hey, I have beat the system. But I'm going to tell you something, that's sin. It is. We are created to work. Man worked in the garden. It, is, it wasn't just the curse of the fall, but man was created to work. We're created to be productive, and we need to work. Uh, we need to work for then for no other reason, not necessarily to achieve the American dream, but to be able to finance the work of God. We need to work. Uh, and in this country, there's abundance of idleness. Uh, selfishness there. It said they, they didn't strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Haughty, uh, a contempt for others. Lofty, arrogant. Let me just say this, and I'm going to move on to the next thing. How dare that we pray for God to send revival to this country with all of its similarities to Sodom, and its abominations, like we have somehow merited God's grace when we won't pray and give and go to people groups who have never heard the gospel once in their lifetime. How dare we? I believe America is right for revival. But it has to be because God's people seek His face and pray and turn from their wicked ways. Not whenever 
Washington, D.C. gets straightened out. Not whenever, you know, California gets straightened out. No, but when God's people turn to Him and seek His face. See, if you don't think America is too far gone for revival, then Sodom wasn't too far gone either. God had not written them off. Here's one for the intellectuals. Somebody might say, well, perhaps God didn't send them a witness because He knew that they wouldn't believe anyway and the witness would be wasted. Well, that's quite Calvinistic of you. Well, see, God knew ahead of time in His foreknowledge. He had predestinated this city to be saved and this city to be destroyed. You know, God chose this one for heaven and He chose this one for hell. Man, you better get out of here with that stuff. That's not how my God operates. My God operates on a whosoever basis. As a matter of fact, if that is your thought, well, God didn't send them a witness because they wouldn't have repented anyway. I have Bible to prove that that's not the case. In Matthew 11, verses 20-24, Jesus mentioned three cities by name. Woe unto you, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Uh, Bethsaida and Chorazin, along with this third city we're going to mention, Capernaum, were three cities located on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. And then he brings Capernaum into it and says this, And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which had been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. Sodom would have repented if they had seen the works of Christ. And if that's the case, I believe that Sodom would have repented even if God had only sent them an anemic missionary like Jonah. So why didn't God send Sodom a missionary? I'm going to flip the whole question on its head now. And I'm going to tell you this. God did send a representative to the city of Sodom. And his name was Lot. Whoa, 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 Brother Scott. There's no way you're telling me that Lot was a missionary. I know some things about Lot. There are three views we could take of Lot. Number one, some, some have actually said this, this is a thing. Say that Lot was really a faithful missionary, but much like Noah, he didn't have many, cons, uh, many converts. No one believed. The Bible does tell us that Lot was just. The Bible tells us Lot was righteous. And some have tried to make the case, hey, Lot really was a faithful missionary who did his best and Sodom just wouldn't hear. Well, let me say this. There are two religious texts that say this, that Lot was a faithful missionary. One is the Koran, and the other is the Book of Mormon. Because those books say that he was, I'm going to say 180 degrees opposite of that is true and that he wasn't a good, faithful missionary. I do know this. A faithful missionary wouldn't call perverts his brethren, as we see in Genesis 19. A faithful missionary would not offer his virgin daughters to be abused sexually. A faithful missionary would not be laughed at by his sons-in-law when he tried to warn them of the judgment that was coming. So I scratched that. Lot was not a faithful missionary. Number two, you say, well, here's who Lot was. Lot was just... He was not a missionary. He was just an average guy, just your average Joe. And here's where I preach to you folks. Because there are too many people in the average Baptist church 
in the average city, in the average state of America, who consider themselves average Joes, and you don't take the Great Commission personally. Our preacher is him. You missionary up here, you have a duty to carry out the Great Commission. You have a duty to preach the gospel. But me, I'm just a pew sitter. I just come and donate every every Sunday. I put my money in the offering plate so that this man and his wife and maybe a few deacons can go out and do the work of God and I'll just sit back here on this pew and you guys can take care of all that. That's not the way it works. Matter of fact, Abraham believed that Lot should have been doing something there in Sodom and this is why he bargained with God this way. Abraham begins to count up here. He says, okay, when Lot left me, he left. I know now that Lot has a wife and he's got at least a couple of unmarried daughters and at least a couple of married daughters and two sons-in-law. And of course, he left here with who knows how many herdmen. He left me with a lot of people. These people ought to be influences for Jehovah. They know the right way. They know how to worship the Lord God of heaven. They should have been taking this message to the city of Sodom. And that's why Abraham says, when he begins to bargain with God, surely there are 50 righteous people in the city, because I expect Lot would have done something down there for the cause of God. But there's not 50, and there's not 45, and there's not 40, nor 30, nor 20 nor even ten righteous people in the city. So no, Lot was not just an average Joe who had no expectation of him. No, I say this to you. Lot was a poor missionary who could not influence nine other people toward heaven. And we're tipped off that this is the true identity of Lot when we look at the meaning of his name. The meaning of Lot's name is covering or veil. Now think about that for a second. I'm going to take you flash back to your your, uh, childhood Sunday school. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Now we get to verse 2 or whatever. I forget about the verse where we tell Satan to sit on attack. Or is that another song? I can't remember. Hide it under a bushel. No! I'm going to let it shine. What happens when you hide that light under a bushel? You're covering it. You're veiling it. If you cut off all the oxygen to it, you completely extinguish it. What happens with that bushel? Oh man, it's covering the light that's supposed to be put out. Lot's horrible testimony covered any light that he had that he should have been shining forth to the people of Sodom. Now, I said that Lot was a poor missionary that could not influence nine other people for heaven. I want you to think about that number 10 just for a minute when we go to Luke 17. You don't have to turn there. In conclusion, I want you to think about Luke 17. Christ performs a miracle where He heals 10 lepers. You remember that one? He tells them to go to show themselves to the priests. And as they walk toward the priests, they begin to, they're just walking along. And the next thing you know, they begin to look and like, oh, hey, hey, my, my flesh is recovered. Whoa, I've been healed. And you may remember that a certain number returned back to give glory to God and to thank Him for what He had done. How many came back? One. 
Jesus asked that man a question. Were there not ten cleansed, where are the nine? And now my challenge in closing to you tonight is this question. I'm going to ask each of you the question. Where are your nine? Remember God said He would not destroy Sodom if there was Lot plus nine other righteous souls there. I ask you, where are your nine? Would you be able to say that you have had some part either in planting, watering, sowing, or reaping the seed? Whether you've personally led someone to the Lord or if you've given a tract, that you've had a part in nine other people coming to Christ. Would you be able to say that? Can you count nine others that will be in heaven because of you? And I preach that not so that you'll feel guilty. Say, oh no, no, I, I haven't. And so you'll feel a little bad and then you'll walk out these doors and continue to do what you're doing right now. My challenge to you is this. If you can't say that there's nine other people that will be in heaven because of you, you need to do something about it today. You need to confess that to God. You need to repent of that and say, with God's help, I will strive to be a witness and to take His Word and to take the Gospel. You say, well, I, I don't know if I could deal with nine people. Well, what about one? What about one? Amen. See, for you to get to nine, first of all, you've got to start with one. So you take someone that God has put on your heart, and there should be someone on your heart that you know that's lost. And you say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to rest until I've got the gospel of them. I can't make them believe. I can lead a horse to water, can't make it drink. But I can do my dead level best to give them the gospel in a clear manner of presentation. Yeah, but, but, it'll, you know, but it'll mess up family reunions. It'll create an awkward situation at work. You know what's going to be more awkward than a situation at work where whenever Revelation 20 verses 14 and 15 and whosoever was not found in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. And I believe that we as Christians will observe that. And that's why in the following chapter, the God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. Because we'll see those that we should have reached and we did not. Let's make a plan tonight and commit to it. Whether we need to write a letter, send an email, make a phone call, send a text, to let someone who is lost know that we care about them. Amen. Now you may say, hey, Brother Scott, <laughs> I'm a pretty good Christian. There are nine other people going to heaven because of me. So because of that, the rest of you slackers better get busy. I'm just going to sit back and watch y'all. Well, what was the first number that Abraham used to bargain with God? Fifty. Alright, so are there 49 other people that's going to be in heaven because of you? Or 39? Or 29. There's never a point when we stop and we sit and rest. We rest when we're dead. Okay? That's when our labors have ceased. Guys, my challenge to you tonight is this. We've got to get into this city, into the city where you live. We've got to take the gospel. Let's stop being a lot. Let's stop covering our witness. It's estimated that where the city of Sodom was, 65,000 people perished. There's, uh, I went to the Creation Museum. There's a meteor that hit, and they say this is that happened about the time that we would find this in the Bible. A fiery meteor, of course. 
Brimstone, sulfur. 65,000 people died in a moment. Remember the beginning of the message I told you to put yourself in the shoes of a person who knows of coming judgment. Guess what? You don't have to imagine. You are a person that knows of coming judgment. We have a duty to tell others. Pastor, would you come?